Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. We are to the end of chapter 5. The last four verses will be our focus this morning. We have much in common with the Hebrews in that we have a heritage, a Christian heritage, especially the American Evangelical Church. Uh, we have been given a wonderful, uh, wonderful gift from those who've come before us. Uh, no matter what uh, the current state is in so many ways, we as Christians really do have a wonderful heritage here. Uh, but I'm afraid that overall, it may be said of us that we have become dull of hearing to some degree. That is what the author of Hebrews addresses. In fact, about 10 years ago, a book by a man named Gary Johnson entitled, Does Theology Still Matter? The Coming Evangelical Crisis, made bold proclamations and predictions of where we were heading as an American church. And I think much of what he has forecasted is here. Listen to what he says in that book. Although most of today's professing evangelicals would acknowledge that theology, in some sense of the word, does matter. A recent survey in Christianity Today revealed that this is more lip service than anything else. According to this survey, theology, in any sense of the word, is really not all that important to the very people to whom it should matter most, those in the pew and in the pulpit. Both groups listed theological knowledge as last in terms of pastoral priorities. We are sadly, sadly experiencing, on a rather large scale, a subjectivism that betrays its weakened hold on objective truth and the reality of Christianity. By its neglect or even renunciation of its distinctive objective character, men really wish to have a creedless Christianity. Creeds, they shout, are divisive things. Away with them. Where does this leave us, Johnson asks. An undogmatic Christianity, Johnson says, is no Christianity at all. That is, in fact, where we find ourselves as the American church. And we, my brothers and sisters, are part of that church. This isn't a time to blast them. This is us. And so we have the opportunity to see that, own up to that, and see a change. What happens in Hebrews chapter 5 is you have a buildup of this glorious, deep doctrine of Christ. For five chapters, Christ is superior to the prophets, to Moses, to the angels, to Aaron, to Joshua, the high priesthood, Christ, Christ, Christ. But then he has to pause and say, you know what? What I've just said I want to say more about, but because you're dull of hearing, I can't go on. You've been drinking milk for so long that you have no idea what solid food tastes like anymore. Hear God's word, Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Bow with me in prayer. Lord God, as Paul prayed for the Colossians, so I pray for our church that we may be filled with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of you, our Lord, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of you. Lord, may we be strengthened with all power, according to your glorious might, 
as made manifest by your holy word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. On this day, I'm reminded of one of the great gifts my father gave me, that is a love for tomatoes. Now, tomatoes are the greatest fruit, vegetable creation God ever made. We know this, just the debate over whether it's a fruit or a vegetable tells you how dominant it is as a force in the world of fruits and vegetables. In fact, if you, just think what your life would be without tomatoes. No barbecue sauce, no tomato sauce for your pasta, I can't even imagine that. Nothing to put on your pizza. No ketchup, what would you put on eggs or macaroni and cheese without it? Just imagine. You've got to have tomatoes. So I have 16 plants in my garden, and my wife lobbied to have our, our garden really be a garden this year, so I added two zucchini plants and some peppers. But we have a tomato garden, and really this year's only been fair in that uh, there's been a lot, of, uh, a lot of rain, it's been kind of cloudy, and so they're not growing as, as good as they have in years past. But by experience and watching my dad grow them in western New York, which is always like that, uh, I could tell you that they're coming along okay. They're growing, they're progressing. Now, 16 plants, I've got seven different varieties. They all grow a little different rate. I have early girls that I don't really like that much, but they get me over the two-week hump before the rest come in. That's why I grow those. And so they're all at different stages when you look at them, and it's okay. That's, what, that's the way they are to grow. And I know by experience that uh, they're coming along fine. I haven't counted my tomatoes before they've entered the pot of sauce yet. I know that we've got to continue to weed. We have to make sure that there is enough water for them, not too much sun, that there's not any kind of bug infestation that might occur. I've had that happen before. So we're, we're not jumping ahead of the game here, but experience tells me, and by peeking at my neighbors, that we're doing good, that our plants are growing well. Every plant is designed to grow in a certain way, in a certain time. God made it that way. The same is true for you, my brother and sister in Christ. God has an intended growth pattern for you, a growth curve we might call it. All Christians grow. He starts by feeding us milk. We move on to solid food. We move on to discernment and to teaching ourselves. But make no mistake, there is a definite curve. In fact, that is what's being addressed here. It's unfortunate in a sense that the preacher here has to pause as he's developing the glorious doctrines of Christ because he realizes that people become dull, they become atrophy, they've been feeding on milk so long they can't handle meat when it comes at them. So he has to pause. And we see from this passage that while each believer grows at a different rate, and that's wonderful that you're all at different rates, that's exactly by God's design, there is though a definite growth curve that we look to and it helps identify progress. Let's look at the passage together and first draw out of this uh, rather stern uh, statement in these four verses. Now let's gather first what God's intended growth curve is. Now the scriptures as a whole give us, uh, inform us to this, but let's just look at this passage because it obviously meshes with the whole of scripture. God's intended growth curve starts always with milk. Look at verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So we have a differentiation between milk and solid food. Here in verse 12, milk is defined as the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need them, it says. And then it says right after it, you need milk. So milk and the basic principles of the oracles of God are the same thing. We all, you all, need milk. When we become believers, when God calls us to himself, or as he begins the discipleship process in your life, milk is what gets you off that starting block. It's what gives you strength. It's what keeps you focused on further learning. We all need milk. 
And that's the beginning of God's intended growth curve. Milk is good. It's wonderful. It's the ABCs of the revealed will of God, we might say. Uh, we're talking the most elementary of God's truth. But I have to say to you, as I was looking at what we would think of as elementary truths, many of them have become foreign in the modern church. We would think of them as meat when really they're intended to be milk. And so maybe that's why we don't even study them because they're too difficult, we might think, at times. But think of what the basic principles of the oracles of God are. First, the oracles of God we know means the word of God because Stephen uses the exact same phrase in Acts 7 when he's talking about the oracles that Moses had delivered. And so the basics of Christianity, for this immediate audience, they only had the Old Testament. And then as the apostles took on their ministries and God spoke the word of God through them and it was inscripturated and we have our Bible, we have the whole word of God now before us, the oracles of God. The basic principles of the Bible is the milk, the first thing we need, we all need. In fact, we never get rid of milk, do we? We still have milk at the table. We move on to other things, but milk is essential, it's important. Think of what milk might be defined as. God creating the world and everything in it. That's the first, most basic principle. God created man in his own image to have perfect fellowship with him. That's a basic principle of Scripture. Man rebelled against God and earned for himself God's just wrath and indignation. Basic principles. You see how important they are to understanding life. God, by grace alone, that is undeserved on our part, by God's grace alone and his own initiation, he called a people out of sinful humanity for himself and for his glory. Still basic principles of the oracles of God. God then sent his son to redeem those people from their sins by shedding his own life's blood. Basic principles. Those people, you and I, those who trust and know Christ, after being redeemed, we bear the mark of our father. We're adopted sons and daughters. And the mark of our father is his righteousness by his grace. Brothers and sisters, those are the basic, basic principles of the oracles of God. We think of them as deep sometimes, but those are basic. That's the front level, and that's what milk feeds us, is this powerful, powerful, deep truth about our God. It is most necessary for us to begin the Christian life and to move on to the next step. In fact, Peter says it this way, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Milk, it is intended for all of us. And I want to encourage you, especially if you're a new believer, it is okay to focus for quite some time on these realities that I just mentioned from the scriptures. It is intended for you for that purpose. In fact, the rebuke that happens in this book is not to the new believer. It's to the one who remains childish, even though they've been a believer a long time. So let's understand, I don't want to discourage anyone who's new to the Christian, the Christian life. It's okay to be dwelling on this milk and taking as much in as you can. In fact, watching three babies grow up in our house, it was fun, especially our first child, when he was hungry, when it was time to eat, he'd be laying in his crib or, or in his little baby chair or whatever, and you'd hear this gnarling on his fist. You, just gnar it sounded like he was just going to eat his hand off. He was hungry. He needed that milk. And I'm amazed that a seven and a half pound baby, or less than that even, I think he was under seven, doubled his weight in just a couple months, drinking nothing but milk. Never had a Twinkie, never had a piece of steak, not a hot. Milk gave him double his body weight. 
That's incredible when you think about it. All he needed was what was in that milk by God's design, and it was exactly what he needed to get stronger so that he could move to the next step. I mean, he's got to grow some teeth before he can chew down on stuff. But that milk gives him so much. That whole first year where milk was primarily what his diet was, I don't think he ate anything solid until about month six or seven. But it was just what God needed or had for him and it's what he needed. So for us, milk is what we need, and it's powerful. It gives us what we need as we first become believers and as we begin to grow. But God's intended growth curve never stops with milk. And perhaps this is the problem we face today in the modern church. Uh, the palatability of anything more than milk is slowly waning, and it's more and more difficult now to try to feed meat when people are so used to milk. We progress to solid food, though. The scripture's clear. Look at verse 11. We've had the definition of milk, but now look at the definition of solid food. Verse 11 starts referring back to what came before it. About this, that is the first 10 verses of chapter 5, and then really the whole content, the first five chapters, about this, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain, since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So if the basic principles of the oracles of God equates with milk, then what he's been talking about thus far in Hebrews equates with solid food. It is not simply enough for your perpetuating Christian life to constantly camp on only that Jesus loves me, this I know. It is true. You have to start there. May you never lose that. May that glass of milk be always at your plate. But realize there is a lot more about Christ. You know, we read just two out of eight sections in the Westminster Confession just telling us who Jesus is based on the Scripture. If we love Christ, we want to know him. When you love someone, you want to know them. You will spend your whole life and never come to the end of chewing on the solid food. That is the information the scripture gives us about Christ. It's blessedness, it's depth, it's profundity. So we are to move on from the milk of the word, which is so vitally important, to the solid food, which these first five chapters, it's all about Christ. And if you study Christ, if you just set to study Christ your whole life, it will be inevitable that you will find that all roads in the Scripture lead to Christ. So take out your 39 books of the Old Testament, and you'll find all roads lead to Christ in the explanation of who Christ is. So when the Hebrews writer says that he fulfills the priesthood, the prophet's office, and the kingship, you realize from all that backdrop who Christ is. And he takes on a more glorious meaning in your heart, and it changes the way you live even more so as you grow eating that solid food. Why did Christ come? Who is Christ? What is the relationship between God the Father and God the Son? How does God the Holy Spirit relate with the Father and the Son? These are all questions that are not just esoteric. They make all the difference in how you live. And as you grow eating solid food, you will grow then in discernment. So we start with milk, we move on to solid food, we grow in discernment. Look at verse 14. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Discernment is what begins to develop as you eat that milk and then move on to solid food. It takes time. We must be patient. But it's what God has happened in this growth curve that he fuels. Dr. Joseph Stoll, the longtime president of Moody Bible Institute, once wrote about discernment. He says this, Discernment in Scripture is the skill that enables us to differentiate. 
It is the ability to see issues clearly. We desperately need to cultivate the spiritual skill that will enable us to know right from wrong. We must be prepared to distinguish light from darkness, truth from error, best from better, righteousness from unrighteousness, purity from defilement, and principles from pragmatics. He is so right. Knowing the scripture and studying its meat and then comparing it to situations as they arise in your life, whether they be something seemingly simple with your child or something that could be as advanced as uh, dealing in the marketplace with the different thoughts and ideas that might come to bear. For instance, think of some of the different debates that are going on right now. How do you analyze them? How do you look at them? For instance, the stem cell debate, the embryonic, embryonic stem cell debate. I hear Christians saying some really wishy-washy things about this. They're, they're sucked into the, the human stories, which are real and we should consider, of someone who might have been cured had we gone down this road, rather than going all the way back to the beginning of what God says about life and what he says and what means he gives to help cure or mitigate the effects of the fall. There are some things in the limits and some things that are off limits. And curing things is not worth any cost. But that takes biblical discernment, that you have to be able to weigh what God's priorities are, put them against man's situations, and determine what is it that would best honor God. Cannot God grant us other cures if we are faithful with these simple things that he has given us? It's not the only way to find a cure to these things. But think of any issue that faces us, this issue of marriage and the definition thereof. You name the issue today, biblical discernment will help guide the people of God in their living as citizens in this world and eventually will work to guide society. But when we're wishy-washy, sticking our proverbial fingers in the air to figure out what's what, it's no wonder they just think we're irrelevant in what we have to say. So biblical discernment is part of God's growth curve for us. We are to grow in discernment. This ultimately leads us And really, this happens as we're growing in discernment. But we then, in turn, feed or teach others. So we ourselves take in this milk, we feed on the solid food, we grow in discernment, now we start feeding others. And mind you, this is not speaking in verse 12 when it says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. This doesn't mean teachers in the sense that everyone is a formal teacher in the church. It doesn't mean that. It means simply that every believer, every one of you, teaches someone, whether it be your children, your neighbor, your spouse, the people in the church, people that you're with at work, whoever it is. You're teachers. All of you are teachers. He's saying is to a group, the Hebrews, not just those who are training for ministry, you ought to be teachers by now. You grew up with the faith. You grew up with the scriptures. You should, by this point, you should be telling others. You should be ambassadors for Christ, for others. That's to others. That's what's being spoken of here. In fact, if you would look at the various texts that talk about us beating teachers, there are more of those than there are giving us the formal offices for teaching. In fact, in Deuteronomy, it says to the people of God, not just to the pastors or the priests among them, but to the people of God, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Are you actively teaching your children about Christ so that they develop an appetite for meat or solid food soon in their life? Think about it. No one here just constantly and consistently gives their children milk. Everyone probably puts beans in front of them at some point. 
or something that they may not like as much because they like the sweet stuff they've been eating. But we know they need what's in it to develop a taste and a habit for those things that will help them in the future. That's what we move to. We feed others. How are you actively teaching your children? But also, I love this passage in Titus, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at the home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. See this component in the life of the church that is largely missing. Where the women of the church take up the responsibility that is clearly given and they mentor other younger women in the faith. So we are to be teachers, all of us. And of course, Peter says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. I read that whole verse because it's not just giving an account. It's the demeanor in which you give the account that also brings honor to Christ. If you're obnoxious about the account, that doesn't help. But in gentleness you give the account, which is, takes time. Discernment has to be built up in how to say what you say. But the point is, we are to move on to feed and teach others. We're not simply learners anymore, but teachers also. This helps us to appreciate the words spoken by Christ when he says, go therefore and make disciples. Disciples, that is a learner. Make learners. Teaching them whatsoever I have commanded you. So we move from spiritual milk to solid food to discernment to now feed and teach ourselves. All of you. That's your goal. That's the growth curve. Do you see his intended growth curve? Well, the text here talks about the stunted growth curve, and let's look at it from that angle as well. What really happens here in verse 12? For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. Notice it says teach you again, as though they've received it once, but now they need it again. The basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Essentially what's happening in the stunted growth curve is they start on milk, and they stay on milk, and eventually they quit even drinking that. I want you to think about how that works. One chief example I can think of, and if you've ever started something that requires discipline and then quit it, and I'm sure no one here has ever done that, you know what I mean. I have. In fact, my mom, I stress, my mom really wanted me to play the trombone. Now, the vote of confidence I got is I got to practice down in the uttermost corner of the basement, so that's how good I was. But at any rate, she wanted me to work on the trombone, so I had to learn my scales, and I had to learn all the rudimentary parts of playing the trombone. I wanted to jump and play the, the big pieces of music. I wanted to get to that part first. But I had to learn all the ABCs of it, and I didn't like it much. In fact, I did it over and over and over again. My heart wasn't really in it, and finally I got so sick of just doing that, I just quit because I couldn't see the big picture. Now, you can think of diets that way, weight training that way, learning a language is sometimes that way. You name what it is. If you only ever camp on the ABCs of the thing, eventually you're going to just quit eating that. It couldn't taste any good anymore. It's not the fun part. It's not the exciting part. And that's what happened here. They grew up in it. It grew cold in their minds. And they just finally put it off to where the author here has to say, you need to be taught it again. Probably didn't get it right the first time. So it's not that they never heard it, they need to get it again. Start on milk, they stay on milk, and eventually it seems as though they quit even drinking that. Notice the descriptive phrase here used. You have become dull 
of hearing. About five years ago, I uh, suffered from uh, an ear infection that grew into a worse infection into where I had about 20% of my hearing out of one ear, about 35 or 40% of the other based on those tests they do when they bounce some tones off your tymphonic membrane, and it was bad, and I couldn't hear. In fact, you'd walk into the house, and the TV would be blaring, and I'm always yelling at everybody just because some of you might remember those days. I'd be in class, and I couldn't hear someone if they were just sitting from where Bob is away. I couldn't hear him. So finally, I just got less and less communicative, which is very difficult for me. And so I just got frustrated. I became dull of hearing, and it just, it it weighs on you, and it kind of depresses you a bit because you can't communicate and and interact, and you just kind of shut down. Well, that's what happened as they became dull of hearing. They shut down to that which would actually heal them or give them the life they needed. In fact, some of your translations may say that you become sluggish. That's a great way to think of it, sluggish. Think of what a slug does. How fast does he progress? We came back one night, there's a big old fat juicy slug at the end of our driveway. and I mean, big one. And we went inside, the boys got them cleaned up and bathed and so forth. I came back out to shut the window in the van about two hours later, and the slug had not moved eight inches. That's the progress they had. They had not moved. If they did move, you couldn't even tell how much they really did. Stunted growth starts on milk, stays on milk, eventually, most likely, just quits drinking it altogether. Verse 13, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. All they know is the basics They become unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. And let me just say, by way of commentary, that I think what we see in the church today is one of two things. If a church or a teaching or or a fellowship just focuses on nothing but milk, eventually one of two things will happen. Either one, the church will continue to move in a direction that pleases the biggest masses, or they'll stay on course and do milk, and the people there will go away from it. They'll either completely deny the faith or they'll just never grow any further and probably drop out at some point, or they'll look for somewhere to go that they'll feed, that they'll eat. That's what's happening in larger scale. Uh, The biggest and most massive churches are getting bigger with new people coming in, but they're rolling people out as fast as they're rolling in. Where they're going is the question. So if there's not a multi-level approach to how we feed folks, there will constantly be this revolving door in the church. So there's got to be a way to address the milk that's needed, the solid food, the perpetuating of growing in discernment, as well as then teaching others. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying we've got the corner on it. I'm just saying that's what we face. And the scripture's clear about the way we ought to go about it. And staying on, or starting on milk is fine, but staying on it will eventually make people quit. And they'll never develop discernment. Look at verse 13. Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. And the word child there means immature. It's not the literal word for baby that is a chronological baby, but one who is childish. Verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by the constant practice to distinguish good from evil. If you don't graduate to solid food, you stay on the milk, and the milk will not give you enough to help you grow in discernment. And the issues of life, instead of becoming clear, become gray and fuzzy. It becomes difficult to know right from wrong, truth from error, righteousness from unrighteousness, and purity from defilement. All that is true of discernment becomes the opposite for us if we do not grow. Francis Schaeffer, in eerie words to me, he wrote this 22 years ago in 1983, shortly before he died, wrote a book called The Great Evangelical Disaster, 22 years ahead. Listen to what he says. Accommodation. How the mindset of accommodation grows and expands. The last 60 years has given birth to a moral disaster, Francis Schaeffer writes. And what have we done? Sadly, we must say that the evangelical world has been part of the disaster. More than this, the evangelical response itself has been a disaster. 
Where is the clear voice speaking to the crucial issues of the day with distinctive biblical Christian answers? With tears we must say that largely it is not there and that a large segment of the evangelical world has become seduced by the world spirit in this present age. This is approximately seven years before the megachurch movement actually started. Schaefer says something that's staggering, sobering. We need to accept it, receive it, and move forth in light of it. How, if we never get off milk, will Christianity be propagated? Who will teach the next generation? Lack of discernment is what seems to characterize the church today. How many times have you watched someone who's supposed to be a Christian give an answer that is shoddy and wishy-washy? Just a few nights ago, I watched Larry King live and saw the world, the most pronounced, uh, most well-known evangelist, who have no question about personal integrity and personal position, faith in Christ. But when asked, do you make any judgments about where people go if they persist in Judaism or Islam or any other religion but Christianity, he says, I make no judgment. That's where his words. What? I mean, just go back 20 years ago, you're saying something different. Now, I make no judgment on anyone. I think I understand the sentiments, just don't want to offend, but they're not helping anyone. Not helping anyone to be that wishy-washy and that fuzzy. And yet that's just really a description and really is held up as the icon of evangelicalism. David Wells in his book, No Place for Truth, which I have several copies of in the back, says, we are called to see that the church does not adapt its thinking to the horizons of modern, the modern mindset and what it prescribes for it, but rather that it brings to those horizons the powerful antidote of God's truth. It is not the word of God, but rather the modern mindset that stands in need of being demythologized. And he's right. We lack discernment, and then ultimately we're unable to feed others. About this we have much to say in verse 11. It's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. You know, when you think about it, you've got to learn yourself in order to propagate this faith that's so near and dear to us. When you're on an airplane and the attendant comes on to show you how to put on the mask, they always tell you, it, what they tell you goes against parental instincts, they tell you put it on yourself first, then put it on the child who is with you. In other words, if you can't breathe, if you can't think clearly, you are not going to be able to save the person who needs your help and can't save themselves. We've got to grow. We've got to grow in the knowledge, the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, which is deep and it's wide, so that we can teach others. If we don't, who teaches the next generation? Much of what we see today is because a generation preceding us failed, failed to teach us meat, solid food. So we have a generation of people unable to teach others. I mean not to leave this in a negative tone. However, the writer himself is being very, very sober in this as he's building up these beautiful pictures about Christ to the Hebrew believers. He then has to say, you've grown dull in your hearing. You're not going to get everything. You're not going to get the depths of the riches of what I'm going to say because you've become dull. So it's implicitly a warning to us to not become dull, to grow, to move on to solid food. And the fueling of the growth curve is always and everywhere present here for us. And I would suggest it to you in two ways, that we, the ways that we can fuel our growth curve. Two things, the disciplined study and application of the word of righteousness, of the word of God in the community of believers. This is the way we fuel it. It happens every, down to the personal family who works to teach children the basic principles and move them onto the solid food, the way you as a parent or a member of the church involve yourself in the opportunities there are for learning, no one is judging you for where you are. No one should ever do that. The fact is, though, you're moving ahead, you're moving on to eat more food, to gain more solid food. 
all of us, discipline study and application, not just study, my brothers and sisters. Just to study does not accomplish growth. In fact, it will make your head grow in disproportion to the rest of your body. And that's not the way God intends for it to be. Discipline study has its way of always asking the question, how shall I then live? And then lives. So it's the integration of the truth of the word of God, the solid food, into every situation you come against, no matter how little or how big. And that is what discipline, study, and application of the word in community of believers means. Community of believers, I emphasize, because God always addresses us as a community. Individuals make up that community. Individual family units strengthen that community and are the core of it, for sure. But the community itself helps each other because we are able to be more objective with one another, have maybe a better perspective sometimes than just what my little perspective is. And in the community, with the word, we are then shaped into an influence for this culture. It fuels the growth curve. It's what makes it move faster and more effectively. Solid food is for the mature, but those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. How do you train it by constant practice other than to read it and study it and then apply it? And let no one tell you that theology or the study of doctrine is impractical or not necessary. That is exactly the opposite of what is true. Gordon Clark said it well. God has given us a verbal revelation. We are obligated to study it. That is the scripture. No further exhortation is necessary. No doubt many of those who decry logic and information are personally Christians. However, their publications, preaching, and conversation are not Christian. Nor are they logically consistent in repudiating biblical dogma. Because Christianity minus intelligible, intelligible doctrine is simply unintelligible doctrine minus Christianity. And he's right. This is why Paul writes to us in the book of Ephesians. He gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. To do what? to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Everything we do, my dear brothers and sisters, has to be bent towards growing in that growth curve that God gives for us. Because it's not just about us. It means we'll then pro propagate and multiply and duplicate ourselves. And the kingdom grows. Our worship should reflect this. Our liturgy should reflect, reflect this. Our prayer should reflect this. Our hymnody should reflect this. Everything about our corporate growth should reflect this. But individually, your individual pursuit of studying and knowing more, the weekly exposition of the scriptures, the catechism for your children, Christian schooling or Christian education, however you do it, is, is the only option for education. There's not another kind of training. Studies for the women in the church that are particular. Studies for the men of the church that are particular. Leadership training for everyone just to learn how they are to be individual teachers of other people. You name the different kind of group we have within the group. The point is all of it is bent towards feeding on solid food that helps us to become discerning and teachers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So discipline, study, and application of the word in the community of believers is how we fuel the curve, or how the curve is fueled. 
But ultimately, don't forget to practice and to proclaim. Solid food is for the mature, verse 14, who have their powers trained by constant practice. That means to have your faculties trained by habits of repetition. Doing something over and over again gives you opportunity to get better at it, become more skilled at it. And the Lord, he overrides your mistakes when you're going through teaching and, and helping. As long as you're submissive to the word of God and the authorities God have placed in your life, go forth and teach those things. Be accountable to someone and grow in your ability to be that kind of teacher, both by the, what you do and what you say. Practice and proclamation. You're able to be able to distinguish good from evil. That is that whole component of discernment. And finally, my brothers and sisters, don't be afraid, especially in this day and age. I say this because it's particular today. Don't be afraid to be dogmatic. Don't be afraid to be dogmatic. There's nothing wrong with dogmatic when the dogma is truth. That is a, a myth of today that it's wrong or somehow bad to be dogmatic. Dogma is simply a religious truth established by divine revelation and defined by the church. That's the secular definition. Well, if it's true, be dogmatic, because that's what is needed today so desperately. Tozer said it in the late 60s. He said, moral power has always been accompanied with definite beliefs. Great saints have always been dogmatic. We need a return to a gentle dogmatism that smiles while it stands stubborn and firm on the word of God that lives and abides forever. He's right, gentle dogmatism. Don't be obnoxious in doing it, but be dogmatic because that's what the culture needs is a moral compass, and the Word of God is, that, is it. And so if the people of God are wishy-washy or so worried about being divisive because they want to say something as profound as Christ is the only way, if we remain wishy-washy in that we will not corporately be able to teach and we lose our discernment. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is not an event. It's a process. We're all in the process. Where are you in that process? What is your diet? We all should be teachers. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for giving us your word. I thank you for giving us direction, for letting us know, giving us truth, so we, being honest with us. Lord, move your people here to continue to progress in that walk there on with you. For those who are new believers, that they might be encouraged and invigorated by the pure milk of the word, so that they are building up their palates, so to speak, for that solid food that is coming. For those who have been eating solid food, that they would continue to move on in that, testing it with their lives, integrating it in their lives, asking, how shall I then live? Lord, use this progress, this growth in your church's life to bring glory to your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen. Together.